0: Welcome to the Gabby Ree Show, where everything is an experiment.
1: I was shocked. The idea that diet could heal, could actually heal, not just make you feel better in terms of number of bowel movements or you know how you felt, but the gold standard, which is what we call mucosal healing, that her colon could go from severe Crohn's to normal with diet. It was like magic to me and I was like, okay, I have to learn more about what she's doing. This is crazy. I'm not here to sell you any supplement. I just wanna give you good advice and I wanna teach you how to be a better advocate with your doctor. Like, you know, let me give you a little script almost. Like, don't go in there saying, I don't wanna be on any drugs. Go in there saying, I really appreciate this well thought out plan you have for me. However, I really want to try a dietary approach and I want you to be my partner and I want you to be with me through this.
0: Hi everyone, welcome to the show. My guest today is integrative gastroenterologist, Robin Schuttkan. And she is working at the Digestive Center for Wellness that she created in 2004 where she worked after Georgetown University Hospital. She was educated at Columbia Medical. She went to Yale, you get the point. And she has a book coming out tomorrow that I am so excited to share with you called The Antiviral Gut. It will be out tomorrow. There is so much information in this book. There's even an extensive way to communicate to your doctor. She's a doctor. She's sensitive when she worked at the hospital that your doctor has, you know, seven full minutes with you. And we really wanna get you in there for a colonoscopy because that's how our business works. And so she's saying, hey, listen, if you're on medication, which can be very hard on the thing that they're actually trying to heal, these are the questions that you can ask. If you're on medication, ask these questions. If you're trying to maybe lower your dosage, ask these questions. If you go off your medicine and you have a negative reaction, these are the things to ask. So she thought about everything. She's written other books like Gut Bliss, the microbiome solution and she is hands-on with patients and what i love is she had a traditional education then she gets into practice and let's say she had patients that for example she would do a colonoscopy on and they'd come back and she'd do another one and there was some huge improvement and so she would say hey listen what are you guys doing and what she found is patients won't tell you but if they ask they might share that they were using food big shocker to help heal their guts. You know, it's confusing. We all hear about microbiome, how much it impacts us, our personalities, our moods, our health. Even like in our wealthier countries, you know, all the new autoimmune diseases showing up where if you go to some of the sort of, you know, third world countries, they don't even have it because they're not eating sort of all the unusually processed foods that we're eating. Also, they don't take as many medications as we take and such. And so rather than just saying, hey, this is how I was trained and this is what we're gonna deal with it, she started experimenting with using food as part of the cure for taking care of things that would maybe be less obvious to you and I. And she drills down on, hey, we've gotta think about three things. We have to think about our stomach acid, we have to think about our stomach liner, which is about a cell thick, and we've gotta think about our microbiome. And how do we undo you know, dyspiosis or manage autoimmune you know, diseases? or you know just so many different things that people will end up dealing with if some of this is a a rye or we've got little you know punctured perforated holes in our stomach lining and things like that and the other thing she talks about is we've gotten too unwild. we've got to get out in nature we've got to be barefoot we have to you know commune with dirt and just how we have so much more power to support our health than we forget i think we sign it over we get lazy, it feels overwhelming, but it's people like Dr. Chutkan that are here to help us and go, hey, listen, this is what I'm seeing. I work with people you know, every day, all day, this is my business and I'm gonna give you some secrets. So her book comes out tomorrow. It's called The Antiviral Gut and I hope you enjoy the show. So, Dr. Ken, there's so much I want to cover, and I was saying when I was doing my research for today, I was like, oh, I want to give her a hug for this work because Aww. no, I mean this because you, it's really important, I believe, for people to come with science, and you know, you have all these formal education, so you can say, hey, Yale, and, and you know, all these things. But I, I'm always, in, I, I sort of have an extra um, appreciation when people can say, hey, I'm going along on this path. And I'm sort of doing it in this way that's traditionally done in a grown-up way, but also I'm seeing some things, and I'm willing to take a look at that. And so, yeah. you um, were on this—you're on the staff of Georgetown uh, University Hospital, and then in 2004, um, you started the Digestive Center for Wellness. And so, for me, 2004 must—I have I feel like that was a for you to say, "Hey, I'm going to open up the Digestive Center for Wellness." you know, how did you get to the place where you were doing it? I would imagine pretty traditionally and you go, wait, there is more here.
1: Yeah. So, so very intuitive that you honed in on that year. And 2004 was a very significant year because I was pregnant with my first and only child, my beloved Sydney. My husband and I were gutting a house down to the studs. I can't even say the foundation because it was even, we had to pour a new slab. So we were, Gutting a house. And I was like, and by the way, I'm leaving Georgetown and starting a practice. So there was, there was so much going on. But I, I'd been at Georgetown for that po- at that point almost a decade. And while Georgetown is a fantastic institution, I just didn't feel like I had room to take care of patients in the way I wanted to take care of them. First of all, to spend the amount of time sitting, talking to somebody, rolling up our sleeves, saying, okay, we're gonna really figure this out providing other services like a nutritionist, biofeedback practitioner, really focusing on the diet and the lifestyle. And while I enjoyed doing colonoscopy as much as anyone else, having done like 16,000 of them or whatever it was at that point, I was like, I know how to do this and this serves a really important purpose, but there's all this other stuff beyond the scope (laughs) that is really important that I really just didn't have the room for within the confines of an academic practice with a lot of endoscopy and colonoscopy and really short office visits. And so it was, I mean, sometimes I look back, I'm like, what was I thinking? We're pregnant, gutting a house. I'm starting this, you know, fancy practice on my own. And I remember the very first day being there with my wonderful assistant, Betty Greenhouse, who had come with me from Georgetown and we're literally hooking up the fax machine. I'm quite big pregnant at this point. And she's like, don't worry, it's going to be fine. You have a tax ID number. That's all you really need. You'll be fine. And I remember the first patient who came was a nun. And she had been my patient oh. at Georgetown. And I was, I was so excited she came. I wanted to not charge her. And Betty was like, oh no, we're charging. We're charging because like you have to make a living. You don't have a salary anymore. But it was really, um, you know, it was just like this adventure of being able to create the kind of practice and take care of people the way I wanted to take care of them, which is if I, if you are a patient having a digestive health problem and I don't have the space to talk to you about what you eat and the stress in your life and how you live, how am I going to solve your problem? I can't solve your problem with just my colonoscope and a prescription pad. That is definitely not enough. So you're absolutely right. That was sort of the beginning of the journey. And then you know the opportunity to write the first book, "Gutless," and to really put my nickel down and say, "This is what I think. This is my belief system, and this is what I see that's going on." And for all the people out there, and especially the women who are struggling with this and being told, you know, being gaslit in some way, let me actually give you some information and a roadmap so you can you can start to try and figure this out. So that was just an incredible opportunity, and um, yeah.
0: What were the patterns, and I would imagine, and and we'll get into it. But what were the patterns over and over that you just kept seeing, that then you thought, okay, you know, whether it's working with patients and helping them improve uh, through their lifestyle and and maybe healing their gut and doing some other things, what were the patterns o- that you were seeing that you thought, okay, I'm I'm going to address this and then kind of condense everything and communicate that in in Gut Bliss.
1: Yeah, I think there are two main themes. One is the mechanical aspect of what was going on in people's guts that I think they weren't fully appreciating. And the other is something happening physiologically, but at a microscopic level, and that's a microbiome. And so from a mechanical point of view, you know, it's this 30-foot digestive superhighway that goes from the mouth to the anus and all the sort of traffic jams along the way, right? And, uh, And for people to understand, like, For example, the stomach has a bedtime. The the gastric contractility slows down to basically a standstill once the sun sets. So if you're eating the majority of your calories, if you're sitting down for your big meal three hours after the sun has set, it is not going to be digested in a timely fashion. You are going to have heartburn, reflux, feel bloated, et cetera. So, you know, like once you explain that to people and you're like, you can eat the same amount of food but you have to split it up differently you have to figure out a way to eat more early and Mm -hmm. eat less later and if you do that a significant percentage of people having reflux symptoms the reflux symptoms will go away and so i was seeing all these people being you know slapped on a proton pump inhibitor which this class of drugs work amazingly well they're very good at what they do which is to completely shut down the acid pump in your stomach but it comes at a cost because now you've interfered with digestion because you don't have stomach acid. The digestive enzymes aren't going to work optimally. It's going to interfere with the absorption and assimilation of nutrients. It's going to mess up your microbiome. And I'm like, but we can, we can solve all of that by really explaining to people that they have to not overfill their stomach late at night, explaining that, you know, the caffeine that they're having, the four cups of espresso are opening up that valve and they need to have less maybe not none but less so you know or explaining that diverticulosis how that works that you know the stool is getting caught in these potholes and if you sweep the potholes through with some psyllium husk or increase the fiber you're not going to have symptoms and on the microbiome side really, while I don't think the microbiome causes everything that's wrong with us, but it is at the root of so many of the diseases we see, and particularly my area of expertise, if you will, was autoimmune diseases, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And we were seeing so many scientific articles, so many clinical articles about disruption of the microbiome as being one of those really important sort of triggering Factors that could lead to inflammatory bowel disease, especially in people who are already genetically susceptible, and it just wasn't something that was being addressed on the sort of more conventional side. It was like, okay, you have ulcerative colitis. Sorry to hear. Here's a steroid. Here's a biologic. See ya. Mm. And while those drugs play a really important role in people with refractory disease, they shouldn't be the first line of therapy. So I really wanted, I wanted a practice where. I had the room to really sit down with people and, you know, do the forensics and get in there and then offer them some solutions that were less fraught with side effects than what we traditionally have.
0: And I think, you know, I I was just recently talking, it's, I always love when everybody sort of keeps repeating the same things and they're in very different fields. And I was just talking to somebody who is a Harvard psychotherapist and his thing about, you, you know, caring for your mental health through, you know, managing your gut health, your insulin, your weight and some other things. So, you know, and you have a different level of confidence because you're in the science, you're seeing the studies and you're also dealing with the patients. But when you're starting out, how do you even create a strategy initially to say, "Hey, I want you to try this." Like how did you know? Cuz I feel like you have to almost put it you had to start putting it all together and creating yeah. creating the 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 kind of prescription for it versus they taught you that at school
1: no it's such a great question and you're absolutely right I mean I feel like I had a world-class education particularly at Columbia for medical school residency I was a chief resident there so I was there for I was that Columbia from from 87 to 90 three. So for a long time, what is that? Eight years, something like that. I might've gotten that right. 95. So for eight years. And then at Mount Sinai for two years for my GI fellowship, and I got incredible training. But this whole question of why, you know, why do you have ulcerative colitis? Why do you have gallstones? That didn't figure in very prominently. And it was just a, it was almost a coincidence, Gabby, when I came to Georgetown to join the faculty in 97, Shockingly, in 1997, I was the first woman they'd had it in the GI faculty, and I had great male colleagues, but GI is this really odd field where still the statistic is about 70% of the patients are female, and when I was doing my training, it was only 7% of the docs were female. Now, we're into the double digits, yay. We're not quite at 20%, but we're getting there. And at the same time, we were seeing this other phenomena where there was a great desire for gender-concordant physicians. So women wanted female OBGYNs, and they wanted female gastroenterologists, mm-hmm. and men often want male urologists, and I get that too. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I say, you know, the best doctor for you is the one who's going to listen to you, and you're going to have a dialogue with etc. et cetera. But when I got to Georgetown in 1997, there was a big demand for people to see a woman. I had this sort of ready-made practice. And what I found and you know this is a generalization. I know just as many men who are interested in root cause, but at the time with what I was seeing in the clinic at Georgetown, the woman wanted to know why. <laughs> you know like, why is this happening and what can I do? And then they were coming to me and, and telling me, well, I'm doing this and this is what's going on. So one of the one of my very first experiences with this, was it was in my inflammatory bowel disease clinic, a woman, she was about my age at the time, we were maybe 30, 31, and she had very severe Crohn's. She worked at the hospital. She had been on one of the early, she'd been on steroids in an early form of biologics, right, when it came out. She left Georgetown and went to New Jersey for a a different job. And she came back a couple years later and came back to see me and I was really happy to see her. She seemed like she was doing great. And I remember sitting there saying, okay, what are you on? You know, ready to take my notes. And she was like, I'm not on anything. Mm. And I literally, I think I gasped. I was like, what? You know, you're not on anything. And I was like really worried for her. And she told me what she was doing at the time. I mean, this is, you know, a couple decades ago, it seemed like this wacky diet of, you know, she'd cut out all processed foods and white foods and sugar and dairy. And, and I was like, okay, well, you're feeling well, but let's see what your colon looks like. And I had done her previous three colonoscopies. So I knew her colon inside out and her colon looked completely different. Mm. All those narrowed areas were healed. All the deep ulcers she'd had were healed. And when I tell you, Gabby, I was shocked. The idea that diet could heal, could actually heal, not just make you feel better in terms of number of bowel movements, or you know how you felt but the goal standard which is what we call mucosal healing that her colon could go from severe crohn's to normal with diet it was like magic to me and i was like okay i have to learn more about what she's doing this is crazy and it's this peculiar thing in medicine you know a lot of patients are sort of don't ask don't tell they have been over the years if not ridiculed, dismissed by medical professionals when they say I'm doing X, Y, or Z. I mean, it's changing now, but if we think back to 20 years ago, it was a different time. And so there was this meeting in Capri, Italy that I wanted to go to. It was a young investigators meeting and I was squeaking in onto the wire age wise. And I said, okay, I've got to present something that's just gonna be completely different. So I'm gonna get selected to go to this all expense paid meeting because I am going to Capri. And so I did this quick survey in my clinic asking about the use of complementary and alternative medicine techniques like diet, meditation, acupuncture, herbal therapy, whatever. And I found out that 70% of the patients were doing some sort of complementary alternative medical technique in conjunction typically with whatever I was prescribing. And most of them, I, again, I had no idea, right? So it was kind of don't ask, don't tell. Like, if you really want to know, I'll tell you, but I'm not going to volunteer it. Mm-hmm. And so I did go to Copri. I presented my, my findings. I, it was fantastic. Yeah. But it really, it, it really, um, it sort of lit a spark of like, wow, all these patients are doing this and they're paying out of pocket for it. These are not services that are covered. It must be helping. And so I started to really experiment and to try a lot of these diets myself and to also ask patients, hey, are you doing the specific carbohydrate diet? What's going on with that? And then in 2014, I did a study in my practice, just a retrospective study looking at results of the specific carbohydrate diet. you familiar with that diet? S C D? Does it sound? Will you
0: just will you share it so people get a really sure. sense of it?
1: Yeah. It's a it's a first cousin of paleo diet it is what's considered a low carbohydrate diet but we found out something very interesting in that study so we looked at a couple dozen patients with crohn's and ulcerative colitis and we found that more than half of them were able to either stop medication or reduce the dose of medication there was significant mucosal healing when we scoped them so it wasn't just symptomatically i mean The overwhelming majority of the patients reported they were doing better symptomatically. But when we look at those really important tangibles, like, okay, you're feeling better, but can you actually stop the medication or reduce the dose? And what does your colonoscopy look like? And those numbers were really dramatic. But here's the thing that was really interesting about that study. The patients who interpreted, I mean, everybody in the specific carbohydrate diet is eliminating certain things, right? The processed gluten, the refined sugar, the lactose-containing dairy but the people who were interpreting it as breaking and eggs for breakfast, chicken for lunch, steak for dinner with two broccoli florets, they weren't seeing the same improvement. So there was really a correlation with the amount of fiber intake. So people who were really ramping up the dietary fiber, the plant fiber, were doing much better. And that's a really tricky thing in this population because when there's active inflammation in the gut, sometimes those high fiber foods aren't well tolerated. And so that's when I came up with all these different ways of blending with the green smoothies and the soups and so on. And what I realized is that what was going on was it was changing the composition of their microbiome, eating all those high fiber plant foods. So yes, the absence of processed refined carbohydrates is helpful, but the presence of dietary fiber in terms of really modulating the microbiome and changing the composition of the gut bacteria. And in that way, healing the inflammation was really what was moving the needle. And so after that study, that was when I was like, okay, we can really make a difference here. And the thing I love about my practice is, it's it's non-denominational. Like if you come to me as a lot of people do and say, I am on this biologic or a steroid and I wanna get off it, I'm your gal. Like let's work hard and do it. We have about a 70 to 80% success rate and unlike the biologics which put people into remission only about 30 to 40 percent of the time Mm -hmm. this approach doesn't have a side effect of cancer or infection you know it's it's a health improving effect but if on the other hand you're doing fine on those drugs i'm not going to take you off them if you're doing fine and you don't want to get off them or if you want to get off them and we're not successful i will be the first one to say like look i think you need to be on this medication Mm -hmm. Your disease isn't at a point where diet and lifestyle is really going to reverse it. And so it really is using whatever tool in the toolbox we have to get the patient to the destination. And it's great when we can get people off these drugs, but sometimes we can't. Mm. And that's fine too. So I love not whipping out my prescription pad, but it is there at the ready when needed.
0: So I have, well, I have a, a few questions to that. One is, you know, your business is very hard it's just, it's a hard business to be a doctor. It's, you know, with insurance and like you're saying with time. So can you, are you encouraged because the model is set up pretty much to have your pad out and just sort of, okay, in and out. Yeah. Are you able, you're, you're finding a way to do this and sort of live in both worlds?
1: Yeah. You know, the one thing that I would like to figure out more successfully is when I left Georgetown, I started a practice where we didn't take insurance. And the, the simple reason for that is I went from a model where I was doing a lot of colonoscopy for which we and the hospital are very well reimbursed doing procedures. Procedure takes 20 minutes to do. The hospital makes a lot of money. We make a lot of money. Everybody's happy except the patient because yes, it's great if you're screening colon cancer, but if you come in with bloating and I've scoped you and it's normal and you're still bloated, I really, you know, I haven't done very much for you. And so gastroenterologists over the years have become very incentivized to create practices that are high volume procedure. But when we look at when the minute we sit down to talk to a patient, the clock starts ticking, we're losing money because the reimbursement for the office visit is so low because the insurance companies know, hey, these doctors are just scoping people all day long. They're making tons of money. And often what's happening in a gastroenterology practice is a gastroenterologist herself or himself isn't even seeing the patient. That That's a physician's assistant, a nurse practitioner, somebody, somebody who may be well-trained but doesn't have the same experience. And because it's not cost-effective for the gastroenterologist to see the patient. So when I changed my practice and I was really now in a practice where the consultative piece was key, the procedure also played a role, but it was really that interaction, that excavation, if you will, that was the important piece. And I was like, okay, if I spend more than 10 minutes doing this, I'm now losing money. So I wasn't taking insurance and it really allowed me to i mean sometimes my visits are an hour and a half Mm -hmm. but on the flip side it also meant that only people from a certain demographic who could afford to pay were seeing me and that that bothered me a lot like how can if you have something that you think is valuable and that you've shown has value how can you scale it and so we started during the pandemic um really kind of pushed us and I created a course called Drug-Free IBD, Remission Without Immunosuppression. It's not drug-free because there are many drugs we use for inflammatory bowel disease that I consider sort of below the line in the sense that the toxicity is low and the efficacy is still good. But by drug-free, we mean trying to avoid immunosuppressive drugs like steroids and biologics and so on, the ones that are more fraught with the side effects. And so we beta tested that course with about 25 people. It was a four-week course, I put a lot of work into it. We have these workbooks and then there's an audio lesson and then there's a live Zoom with me and I loved it and they loved it. And I thought, okay, if we can create something low cost, what what would I what do my first 10 visits look like with a new IBD patient? Right? If I can condense that into a 4-week course and I can give them, you know, all the foundations about how and why we get IBD, the risks and benefits of conventional and alternative therapy, and then really get into the food and the lifestyle and with all the scientific references there and everything. And I can give that to somebody at a fraction of what it would cost for them to travel and come and see me, like, wouldn't that be great? And so we did that, we beta tested it, we're getting ready to launch it again next year with a, we made a few little tweaks based on that beta testing group. And I realized like, I love the direct patient care, but I also love the patient education. And I love being able to give people the information without a commercial piece, like I'm not here to sell you any supplement. I just wanna give you good advice and I wanna teach you how to be a better advocate with your doctor. Like, you know, let me give you a little script almost, like don't go in there saying, I don't wanna be on any drugs. Go in there saying, I really appreciate this well thought out plan you have for me. However, I really wanna try a dietary approach and I want you to be my partner and I want you to be with me through this. And if it doesn't work, I'm gonna circle back and we'll figure out what we need to do from a pharmaceutical point of view. But I want, you know, so I'm a big believer, you gotta be transparent with your doc, don't fire them unless they're an asshole, in which case definitely fire them and find somebody new. But how how do you bring them along? Because I was brought along, you know, before my eyes were opened, to what this stuff could do, I thought, oh, this is hocus pocus. You know, what is all this diet and lifestyle stuff? And so my patients educated me and I want them to educate their doctors so that we can really change the profession from within, right? So that conventionally trained doctors can have a better understanding and can see with their own eyes, like I did with my patients, what's possible and can have an approach that's more both, right? Hand in hand with these different modalities.
0: Yeah, I've seen that you are really encouraging people to be their own best advocate. And what I what I also like about that is it's giving them the power, but it's also making them accountable. See, that's the thing yes. is I can't so come true. see you and you say, hey, Gabby, this is what I'm seeing. And I don't change one thing and expect you to make me feel better. So I, I appreciate that it's the it's closer to how it's just how the world is, which is we need to be accountable, but we also need to be able to stick up for ourselves. And, and so I I really appreciate that. Maybe we can drill down because you talk about how like you can go to third world countries and they have so little uh, autoimmune disease compared to, you know, countries like us and in Europe and Canada and things like that, probably because of the volume of, uh, I would imagine processed food and and medication. I mean, the medication yeah, kicks your the medication is huge. It's kicks your guts ass. And I remember I don't know who I was talking to, and they were saying, Oh yeah, anti-inflammatories will put holes in your microbiome. And you're just like, what do you mean? I mean, people take that like candy, oh, this hurts and that hurts. So can we can we sort of talk about some of the thing like some of the things we've talked about the food and And some of that but some of the other kind of things that we have that are really commonplace that are are tough on our microbiome um and also more and more everyone talks about microbiome so i think we we know what it is right it's it's viruses it's bacteria it's fungi there's a lot of it it's on us it's in us but i i think sometimes we don't understand how important it influences everything
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I love to talk about this trio of things in the gut that I think once you understand how these three things work, you understand a lot about gut health and that stomach acid, the gut lining and the microbiome. So let's start with the microbiome because you summarized it beautifully and it is, it's these trillions of organisms that live in and on our bodies, mostly in our gut and they're the ones doing most of the work. So you think about like, who's actually digesting the food? Who's, you know, how is it getting broken down into these constituent pieces? Who is synthesizing the vitamins? Who is growing new blood vessels? Who is, you know, detoxifying all of this work? Who is training the immune system? Who is literally turning genes on and off? All of these things. If we think about the gut immune connection, for example, we have gut bacteria, like Bacteroides fragilis that we call B-frag, one of the common intestinal microbes. And B-frag hang out in the gut lining. And when they see a potent virus come along, they literally kick the gut lining to trigger the release of something called interferons, so-called because they interfere with viruses. Whoever named interferons, I love that, like straight shooter, they interfere with viruses. And then the interferons release this whole like immune cascade to fight the virus. But it's a Bacteroides fragilis that literally trigger this in the gut lining, this release. And so you start to see, hmm, if your population of B-frag is not up to snuff, maybe you're not going to get that sufficient interferon release, and maybe you're not going to be able to clear this virus. So they are literally actively involved in all of these things, in the immune surveillance, in activating genes, and all of these different things. Mm -hmm. And so that's the gut bacteria, the microbiome. And we have found... We found over the last decade, we totally missed the boat. We were busy super sanitizing ourselves when we probably should have been getting a little bit dirtier, right? So to your point about the less developed world versus the more developed, mm. another thing is just the exposure to nature, to soil microbes.
0: Yeah. You, what did you call really it the hygiene, changing. The hygiene hypothesis. The hygiene
1: hypothesis, yeah. Yes.
0: I mean, it's funny because the hygiene we,
1: hypothesis. We've
0: become un—what unwi- is it? Unwild, as you say, and and yes, I think we have and unwilded more and more, every, ourselves. Everywhere we go now, it's always with that with the sanitizer. I mean, I I joke, and it's you know it is, and it isn't funny, but I always say like during COVID, especially when everyone was just cleaning and wiping down everything. But that's actually the stuff that keeps us strong, is all the you know the stuff yeah. around. And I'm I'm sensitive to if somebody feels vulnerable. That's not what I'm talking about. But we used to say, yeah, maybe we should all just go lick railings because at this point we're all getting so uh, clean that we're making ourselves more vulnerable. Um, so I, I really thought that and that And we absolutely
1: was- are. I mean, that has been clearly proven. And as you said, it's tricky during a pandemic because you know you want to limit exposure, particularly in vulnerable populations, but recognizing that that super sanitization from the highly pesticized food chain to the use of these chemicals and personal care products to the food we're eating, which is also full of antibiotics, depending on what we're eating, that we are super clean. And we have about two thirds of the variety, the diversity of gut bacteria. When we look at people in more indigenous situations like the Hadza tribe in Tanzania or people in the Amazon who are also being threatened now, of course, with industrialization, et cetera, their lifestyle. So we see that ju- it's really fascinating gabby when you think about it when you look at when you look at what's happening externally in the world with overfishing over you know deforestation etc and sort of urban sprawl and how the natural world is disappearing the same things happening in our gut and it's happening at a vastly accelerated process like we're in the largest species die-off since the dinosaurs i mean we're losing species thousands of times faster than we should be in the natural world and the exact same thing is happening in our gut for the exact same reason, the same urbanization and granted, you know, I'm happy that we have chlorine in the water. I don't have to worry about getting cholera when I drink some water from the tap. Let me take a sip in honor of that. So at the same time, you know, urbanization and widespread sanitation, are important. I'm glad yeah. that I have indoor plumbing. <laughs> you know, this right. is all good. But it does come at a price when we add to that the fact that the food is also highly pesticides, that we are over medicated. And so the trick is how do we rewild ourselves while living in the, you know, in the real world, right? Do we have to go all the way back to our Neolithic ancestors? We don't, but we do need to pay attention to. Where our food is coming from, what we're actually eating, and we do need to get exposure to more, more soil microbes. We need to get outside in nature. We do need to get a little dirty. We need to let our kids get a little bit dirty, and we need to use medications more judiciously. These are sort of the big categories of things. And
0: you talk, you know, you talk a lot about that. Where, you know, I said anti inflammatories, but. Uh you know, antibiotics and a lot of yeah. things are very, they can really be very damaging to your gut. So maybe we can, let's say you have somebody and they're having a lot of gut issues and they intuitively, they feel, they go, my, you know, it's just not, things aren't right. What is a starting point? Maybe we could just yeah. kind of make it simple, stupid, and, and have a few scenarios just to give people kind of an exit sign, at least to go towards. Absolutely. Um, th- they're and not let me, feeling let me... great.
1: Let me circle back and just say the other two things. We talked about yeah, the microbiome, yes. the gut lining. It's the only thing protecting you from the environment in your gut. And that's the one in terms of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. That's what it's poking holes in, and the gut lining. You need an intact gut lining to protect you from all the stuff you swallow, including viruses, to, pr- to protect them from being able to penetrate through. And then stomach acid. The role of stomach acid is again, to provide this ideal pH for digestion to happen and also to denature viral protein and kill pathogens that get in through our mouth. We have more receptors, more ACE2 receptors for SARS-CoV-2 in our gut than we have in our lungs. And that's why people have so many GI symptoms with this virus. So now you go and block stomach acid, you've removed one of the major defenses your body has to keep you safe from viruses. Now that virus, the protein is not going to get unraveled cuz you have no stomach acid it's going to infect an intestinal cell and get into your body so again this this sort of triumvirate of stomach acid and intact gut lining and a healthy complement of gut bacteria there's a lot more but that's the foundation that's the foundation i like to remind people Is so one you more asked a great is, question
0: wait before we go there's one sort of more yeah. vulnerable i would i mean is some is one sort of easier to heal and one's obviously more complex of those 3
1: of the three the stomach acid is the easiest. So if you are on a proton pump inhibitor like millions of millions of people are, you want to be sure you really need it. If you are taking this just for heartburn and you have not explored, you know, eating an earlier dinner, elevating the head of your bed, cutting down on caffeine, alcohol, eating a less fatty diet, which will improve the gastric emptying, all these diet and lifestyle things, and you've just been sort of slapped with this PPI without any discussion of that stuff, you really need to sort of rewind and see because the vast majority of people with reflux symptoms, when they make those changes, and it doesn't mean no caffeine or no alcohol, it just means less of this stuff, right? Smaller dinner, bigger lunch and breakfast. When you do that, the vast majority of people are able to come off those drugs or take something for reflux more episodically instead of every day. So the stomach acid thing is easy because in the absence of those drugs, your stomach acid is there and it's there to protect you. So in that one, it's a matter of like, let's just not sabotage this thing that is actually there to protect us, right?
0: Do you you poo-poo apple cider vinegar? I had a friend who kind of for just a period of time, I don't know if it was stress or something was going on and they just sort of would do a shot of apple cider vinegar and it, they, they got some relief from it. But, you know, yeah, we that- don't have
1: a lot of clinical trials showing that this does a lot, but it's a pretty benign thing, especially, you know, if you're right. doing it, you should be doing it fairly diluted. So it's not too acidic. If you're doing that and it's helping you, why not? Totally fine. It, it, in people who have been on acid blocking drugs for a while, where sometimes their stomach acid levels haven't come back up, it can be more helpful. The average healthy person who has intact stomach acid probably doesn't need it. But again, if you're taking a couple of diluted shots of it, totally yeah. fine. Why not? So the stomach acid one, that's a pretty easy one. The gut microbiome, we also have great evidence to suggest that food can play a big role. The idea that you can you know, go take a probiotic pill or powder and ta-da, your microbiome is fine, not so much. Not so much, but fermented foods, we know that a tablespoon of sauerkraut, which is about, about 10 grams, contain, can contain two dozen different strains of bacteria as well as all the metabolites those bacteria are making that are also helping, You know, it's really like live medicinal food in a different way from just taking the bacteria. So when you're having something like a fermented food, you're getting the fiber from, you know, if you're having sauerkraut or kimchi from the cabbage, so that's the prebiotic, the food for the bacteria. You're getting the probiotic, the live bacteria itself, and you're getting the postbiotic, the metabolites they're making, all in this tablespoon of sauerkraut, right? Of living medicinal food. So things like that can be inordinately helpful. Increasing the amount of dietary fiber can change your microbiome, but just going and getting a probiotic off the shelf is really minimally helpful. It's kind of like taking a vitamin versus changing your diet. You know, are there situations? Sure. If your vitamin D is low, if your B12 is low, but for the average person taking a multivitamin versus making a dietary change really doesn't compare.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Ritual. I personally have been taking their Essential for Women 18 plus multivitamin since the pandemic began. I was just looking for a really great multivitamin and I love the fact that it has high quality, traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. Because for me, if you're going to, and if I'm going to share it with you, put your resources, whether it's your time or money towards something, you want to know, hey, not only do they have best practices, but this is actually going to do something for me. And 97% of women ages 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D from their diet. It's hard to do. And I like to get as much as I can from my diet, but that is why I take a multivitamin. And Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% in a clinical study. The other thing is they take nine key nutrients in two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption. So I think one of the things is is like, oh, is it an empty stomach? Is it a full stomach? Well, because they the way that they've done these capsules, it's dental on an empty stomach. And at the end, you get this nice little minty essence in every bottle. So for a lot of people sometimes... These are the things that keep them from taking multis and making it easy and being able to enjoy it, whether it's timing or I don't like the after burps. And the other thing about it is Ritual Multivitamins are vegan. They're non-GMO, Project Verified, gluten and major allergen-free, and they are certified B Corp. And like I said earlier, everything is made traceable, and they have a wonderful offer for you today. So all you have to do... You don't have any more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. You will get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash Gabby. If you want to start your ritual, or you can add the Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today, that's ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L dot slash Gabby for 25% off. This podcast is brought to you by Babbel. I don't know about you but every time I travel I kick myself that I haven't spent more time learning whatever language it is in the place that I'm visiting. It's like you want to connect with the people in a real way. Well, immersion, you know, that's the best way. But most of us can't move somewhere and and you know, live there and learn the language even though that's number 1, but number 2 is with Babbel. And the reason that is is first of all they have it's really quick. They've got 10 minute lessons and but they're handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. But what I love about it is it's designed by real people for real conversations. It's like, listen, we all want to know like talk about food and directions and things like that. And Babel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real life situations, and delivered with conversation based teaching. So you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. And that's the other thing I love is just combining that because you think, okay, maybe using a trip that you have planned or getting together with family somewhere, using that as your motivation to get going. And you don't have to pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that maybe don't really even help you you know, speak a new language. In fact, a study showed, there was one study, they did studies at Yale, Michigan State, that Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours, that's nothing, is equivalent to a full semester at college. They've got over 16 million subscribers sold, plus all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. So here's the incredible offer for a special limited-time deal for our listeners right now. You can get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for my listeners at babbel.com slash Gabby. So to get 50% off at babbel.com slash Gabby. That's Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash Gabby. Some rules and restrictions may apply. So when you when you, we talk about eating fermented foods, is there is there sort of a better time? Is it by itself prior to eating? Is it sort of on top before the meal starts? Does it not matter? Because I think we all hear it really hear doesn't this.
1: make a big difference. It Just really get it doesn't. In there. And for the average person, you know, who maybe doesn't love fermented foods, I don't mind some sauerkraut, especially if it's something like with a an apple and kraut or something like that. That's you know that with the green apple, that's really good. I don't love kimchi, even though I like spicy food in general, but you don't have to eat a ton of it. I mean, it could literally be a tablespoon every couple of days. And the other thing that makes a huge difference, Gabby, are what we call MACs, macs microbiota accessible carbohydrates. And so these are things like legumes, like whole grains, oats, also foods that are high in a type of fiber called inulin, garlic, leeks, onion. This stuff is all really good. So it's really like, every single dish I make has leeks, onion, and garlic in it. Like whether it's a stew, a soup, whatever it is, always has that base of leeks, onion, garlic. So even if you're not the kind of person who wants to sit down and eat a big leafy green salad, of course you need those too. But let's say that's not your thing. Just adding in more leeks, onion, garlic makes a huge difference. The food really counts. It was a study That was done uh, several years ago, study out of Harvard, published in the journal Nature, where they took nine volunteers and they put them on basically a high fat, high animal protein, sort of Atkins type diet, right? So it was pork rinds and prosciutto. And then they rested those same nine volunteers for about five days. And then they put them on a more plant centric diet, jasmine rice, lentils, fruit instead of pork rinds for snack. And they found that not only did the microbiome change dramatically within about 30 hours, but they saw different genes that were switched on and off changing too. And what I'd like to remind people is the best study we have about creating a healthy microbiome, which is the American Gut Project study from 2018, that study found that it's the diversity of plants that you eat that makes a difference. It doesn't matter whether you call yourself a vegan, you're a flexitarian, a pescatarian, a lacto variant that's, the label was not important. It was a simple matter of how many different plants. And the magic number was 30, 30 Mm -hmm. different plant foods. So that includes fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, grains, spices, herbs. And when you think about it, like I, if I have oatmeal in the morning, I make it with almond milk, one, oats, two, I have, pumpkin seeds, three, walnuts, four, blueberries, five, a little shaved coconut, six, a little maple syrup, seven. That's seven plant foods from a bowl of oatmeal. I can make a salad and put 13 plants in it, especially if I add a little basil, a little cilantro, you know, add some of those herbs and spices. So it really is a sum total. And you can, the other stuff you eat, yeah, it's great to cut down on the refined sugar, cut down on the meat, all of that. But at the end of the day, are you eating enough plants? And I I take a very, I have a lot of friends who are very devoted vegans and for lots of different reasons, both the animal rights, which is important for the planet. There are many incredible reasons to adopt a fully plant-based diet, but I like to take a more inclusive approach. And what I found with my patients is just getting them to eat more plants. Like in that study I referred to with the patients on the SCD, the specific carbohydrate diet, the ones who were eating more plants did a lot better, even if they were still eating some animal protein. So when you think of it from a health point of view, when you take out the ethical piece and the planet piece, and if you wanna look at it through a more narrow lens from health, you can dramatically improve your health simply by upping the amount of plant fiber that you're eating and the diversity of plants.
0: Dr. Chuck, can I feel like as a culture, we know this. and uh, and Yet somehow it's I I, I wonder because you you meet you meet with patients, mm-hmm. what is it? Why is it so hard for people? Is it because it takes a little effort, like especially if you make it at home? Like what are the barriers that keep people? They yeah. just is it easier, like oh, I'll just take the pill and I don't have to think about it? Like they don't really understand the full ramifications of of that approach. Like, what do you think the barriers are? Because I'm always fascinated by that it's so hard for people to change behavior?
1: It's a great question. And I tell you, it's one that I think about a lot for my patients and sometimes in my own life. So I think it's a couple things. I think one is the culture, the family culture. Like what is your family culture dynamic. Do you sit down together? And you know, as kids get old, your kids are still pretty young, right? How old are your no, kids? No,
0: they're they're big. My youngest is um is in tenth grade and I have a 19 and a 27 year old. But we, you oh, know, wow. we okay we, so we break bread as a family, you know, even if yeah. it's a dog fight, right? Like the 10th grader, I'm like, we are a family and we are having dinner, you know? And you can be but mad you see and see you know
1: as they get bigger, yeah. homework and different things. So the culture of sitting down together is one thing. So what's your family culture? The time, and it does take time to shop. And I like to get to the farmer's market too, out of the supermarket if I can, to shop, to prepare it. No question, it tastes better when you're doing that kind of food, convenience. And so we, I think we start valuing other things more than we value this. And so I think the biggest thing is we have a medical culture that does not put an emphasis on it. We have a medical culture that prioritizes pills over diet and lifestyle. And so you have somebody with, with diabetes, with, you know, adult onset diabetes or hypertension and their doctor's like, take this. And maybe their doctor has not even had a conversation with them about, you know, what to do. And so they're not going home and valuing like, oh, I need to start cooking with less salt and eating less processed food. And I, you know, I need to up my plant because it hasn't been, it has not been, it ha- it's not just that it hasn't been emphasized. It hasn't even been mentioned yeah. by the person and the institution that's supposed to be in charge of this. So I think we, you know, for so many people, they see this as fringe because their doctors aren't talking about it. I'll, I'll read you an email that I got today On Saturday, my husband and I were out having dinner. Let me pull up this email because it really it brought such a smile to my face. Okay, so my husband and I were having dinner on Saturday last and we were sitting outside by the water and we ran into some friends and they had a friend visiting with them from Florida and their friend who was visiting is a physician. And he is a, you know, a very well-regarded ophthalmologist from out of town. And we started chatting and they told him I was a gastroenterologist and he mentioned that he was having some trouble with diverticulitis. And he said, you know, the gastroenterologist keeps putting me on antibiotics. And I was like, no, that's a terrible idea. It's going to make you more susceptible. So I said, I tell you what, I'm going to send you three things. I'm going to send you my one pager on diverticulosis and diverticulitis to look at. I'm gonna send you a link to my free office hours I do every Tuesday, one I did a couple months ago on diverticulitis, and I'm gonna send you my nutrition guide. So I sent that to him on the weekend, and he sent me back this email, which really just brought us such a smile to my face. He said, hi, Robin, thank you so much for the info. I just finished watching your office hours presentation as well. I find it amazing that none, in all caps, that none of my doctors have ever explained this to me Um, Your patients have been most fortunate to have you as their doctor. I will be making some immediate lifestyle changes to alter my disease course. It was great meeting you and thanks again for taking the time to share this information. Now this is a like really, this doctor is like at the top of his game. You know, he's one of the Mm -hmm. most well-regarded doctors for what he does. He's a retina specialist. He didn't know and none of his doctors have ever, ever explained this basic connection, right? So I just find that shocking. It, I, it, and so I feel if there's you a change have coming, highly though. trained medical professionals who don't know and they're seeing other highly trained medical professionals and nobody is talking about this, you start to see why we are not valuing this as a society. So I really, I do feel like we have to shoulder a lot of the blame as a physicians and it's not part of our medical education, you know, so we need to bring those things closer together.
0: Well, it's almost, you know, I always say we've gotten so s- so advanced and civilized that we are going back to the basics now. You know, when we started talking about bone broth 10 years ago, I thought, oh, this, you know, for, for your grandmother and my grandmother, this was part of the way you lived. And so it makes sense, but I really appreciate the way you frame that in understanding that if the doctor or the institution isn't saying, hey, this is how it's important, how would a, a very busy and stressed out person who's just trying to get through their day how would they be able to make that space unless they had the environment around them to go, oh, well, then I need to value this as well. And and certainly, like you say, it's easy. Sometimes it's even less expensive. It's all these things. So I, I have the sensitivity to it, but I, I feel that the information is there and that it's almost like people accept Oh well, this is just how it is now. Especially as they get older, they go, "Oh well, this I guess is just part of aging." Um, and I and I really always want to encourage people to that uh, you don't want to fight getting older, but you certainly can stay healthy. So I I don't want to keep you for too much longer, but I I do want maybe we can finish though with the with the stomach, the third as far as like is you know we did the stomach acid, we did the microbiome, and then the lining, is this sort of the most complicated part of the formula?
1: It's not complicated, but again, the answer here is less about taking a pill to fix it and more about stopping what you're doing that's hurting it. So one concept that I just find amazing as a gastroenterologist is the idea that when food is in your gut, it's not inside your body. It's in this hollow tube that runs through your body. It's in the environment. For it to get inside your body, it's gotta pass through this net, through this highly permeable net that is our gut lining. And that net is only one cell thick. So this is not a thick barrier, it's a thin barrier. And it is selective in the sense that the little pores in the net are very small. So anything that opens up that pores Increases of permeability allows things to get through that wouldn't normally be able to get through, like viruses, like pathogenic bacteria, like undigested food particles that can then trigger a food allergy, toxins, et cetera. So how do you keep your gut lining healthy? I will say, first of all, you do not do that primarily by taking a supplement. You keep your gut lining healthy by avoiding the things that are harmful to it. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are at the top of the list. Antibiotics don't just kill off gut bacteria, they also have a secondary effect on the gut lining because those gut bacteria are very involved in helping to maintain the integrity of their lining. The food that the cells that line that epithelial barrier eat are something called short chain fatty acids that are produced by eating a high fiber diet. So if you're eating a low fiber diet, you're not producing enough short chain fatty acids the colonocytes are not getting their food, the lining breaks down. And we have some great mice studies that show that when you feed the mouse the high chow diet, the lining is intact, the mucus layer is intact. When they start to eat a low fiber diet, the mucus layer disappears that you know affects the gut lining. So high fiber diet, avoiding NSAIDs, avoiding antibiotics, don't block the stomach acid unless you have to. So Gabby, again, this is the other thing that I ponder, you know, we want to do something, to take something. Whereas in my medical practice, I spend most of my time in my GI practice getting people to stop doing things, Mm. right? So I'm like, bring all your medicines in, all your supplements, everything. And I start tossing them in the rubbish bin one by one, right? Like this thing, not helping. This thing, hurting. This thing, interacting with these two other things, causing a problem for your liver. Mm. This thing, talk to the doctor who prescribed this. Find out if you really need to be on it. Can you be on a lower dose? And in the book, in the new book, in the plan, which I'm really proud is literally like half of the book, in the section on medications and supplements, I don't just give a list like don't take these things. For each one, I go through. Here, let me, let me read you a little because this is a part I'm really proud of. So in the plan, I go through, and so for example, steroids. I talk about questions to ask. The key point with steroids is that the risk is dose dependent and cumulative. So the higher the dose and the longer you take it, the greater the risk. The other thing to know about steroids is that you can't just stop them suddenly, they need to be tapered over a period of time. The main questions to ask are, number one, is there a lower dose I could take? Your goal should be less than 10 milligrams per day of prednisone. Number two, what about taking the steroid every other day instead of daily? Number three, could I try tapering the steroid and then plan to restart if my symptoms come back? Number four, can you provide me with a tapering schedule? Then I go through possible alternatives. Consider other non immunosuppressive anti-inflammatories, less well-absorbed formulations, and synthetic forms of steroids that have fewer systemic effects. Here are some options to ask about and I literally list all of them. So I do that for every single class of drugs because since I can't be there with everybody, I wanted to be like, I am right on your shoulder here and I am walking into the doctor's office with you and I'm giving you a little script to ask. And so I really have to thank my team at Avery at Penguin Random House, because with each book, they have pushed more. We want the prescriptive piece. We want people to really know what to do. We want the actionable steps. Mm. And so it went from gutless. It was like the little, you know, plan, the sad gas, sugar, alcohol, dairy, gluten, artificial sweeteners, soy. And then with the microbiome solution, it was a little bit bigger. And then with this book, it's half the book. It's not enough to just tell people these things are problematic. Well, what are they supposed to do if they're on it? Like you need to really arm them with the actionable information to talk to their doctor, to really think about this differently. In the sleep section, I have 28 different steps divided by category, mind, body, environment, et cetera, to help people sleep. Mm. Because if you're not sleeping, it's going to affect your gut. It's going to affect your immune system. It's going to make you more susceptible. We know that. It's even going to make a vaccine less efficacious. But it's not enough to just go and say, okay, you need to get eight hours sleep. Like, how do you do that? Right. So and that so, that's the really cool part about this one.
0: So, Doctor Chuck, you had uh, you had uh, Gut Bliss? You mentioned the the microbiome solution. So, tell uh, tell me exactly uh, the title of this latest one.
1: This book is the antiviral gut: tackling pathogens from the inside out. It's out November first, and it is it was a beast to write, but I think it it was harder than the first three combined. But I'm so proud of it because I feel like, from a public health point of view, yes, this gives people information that could save lives and not just, you know, make your gut healthier, but that could really make people more resilient. And that makes me really happy.
0: So I, I want to end on on just two things. It, um, one is really, pre, you know, there's huge markets for pre and pro, probiotics and such and such. And we we talked about fermented foods. Are you sort of of the feeling like, hey? that stuff isn't maybe the best, it's better really to do it through the food, um, you know, and through sort of really kind of scraping our lifestyle to these habits that really support us, or is there anything out there that you go, yes, I actually like that, it's in the refrigerated section, or how to use it? Yeah,
1: there, there are definitely things that can help, but it's always, and even in my patients, in the healthy ones, in the kind of not feeling well, and in the very sick ones, It's always in conjunction with dietary change. I never hand somebody a prescription for something or a recommendation for something, and I say, here, just take this, you'll be fine. There's always another piece. In my practice, a probiotic I use is called VisBiome. I use it at a a prescription strength in my patients with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. I don't recommend that the average healthy person take that. We don't have evidence that it's gonna do anything. I don't take a probiotic myself. I try and eat a good high fiber diet, occasional fermented food when I can squeeze it in. But from a, when you think about this in a medical context, absolutely. So I use VisBiome for patients with inflammatory bowel disease. I use it for some irritable bowel syndrome patients. Does it work for everybody? Absolutely not. Um, I have a good track record with it. Some people feel worse on it, but again, it's always with the dietary recommendations. Similarly, if somebody needs B12, it's because their B12 is low. It's never just, oh, you have a normal B12 level, but take this extra B12. So it's always you know kind of looking at what is the individual clinical context. And so it makes it difficult to recommend something to everyone. The thing that I recommend to everyone is more vegetables. That can help everyone. But in terms of what you need, it really depends on like what's going on, right? What are you trying to fix?
0: Do you see people who come in and they have a pretty good lifestyle and they're eating pretty well, but they're so stressed out and maybe they're not recovering in their sleep that they really can trash their gut that way?
1: Hugely, and so we, I see this clinically. We have incredible studies talking about the role of stress. And what we know, if we think about college students at exam time, sleep deprived, stressed, not eating well, and right. what happens? They get mono, they get the flu, they get pneumonia, they get really sick. So, we know that with acute stress and chronic stress. So, you have chronic stress and then you have acute stress on top of it. And while acute stress can confer a survival advantage, right? You've got the adrenaline and the noradrenaline pumping so you can, you know, run away from the bear that's about to attack you or whatever it is. But the chronic stress that we live with. That really erodes our immune system. It literally decreases circulation of T cells in our immune system that can fight infection and it can increase pathogenic strains of bacteria up to a thousand fold in an hour. I mean, it is, it's crazy. We have so many stu- we have a great study from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, showing that in men with HIV, their progression to AIDS can be two to four times faster in the setting of chronic stress gabby you think about activation of latent viruses like who gets shingles people who had varicella chicken pox's kids who are now stressed who gets a herpes outbreak yeah. you know these are all things that come up in the setting of chronic stress and so that is so deleterious and absolutely like the thing i say to people and i actually have a patient story in the book that is a disguised real patient who was, you know, very type A and very obsessed about stuff and was getting sick all the time with stuff. And I, you know, really had to sort of break it down to her. Like you're, you may not be able to do anything about the fact that you're applying to medical school and you're working and you're doing research, you're doing all of these things, but you can do something about your response and the stress response, right? Mm-hmm. And what can you do to activate your parasympathetic system and calm you down And, you know, kind of tamper down your sympathetic nervous system. And so, again, lots of actionable steps in there from simple exercises with the breath to forest bathing, shinrin yoku, what you can do to bring stuff down in a non-pharmaceutical way.
0: I really appreciate that. I just always bring it up because people think, "Well, I exercise, I eat really good," and I'm like, "Yeah, but you're like you said, Uber Type A, or just stressed out and think it should be perfect, and that gets you in another way." I want to. F- you wanna
1: probably f- see that in the in the world of professional athletes. A lot of that, right, where people are doing these things, but there's yeah. so much stress and pressure.
0: Yeah, and I I experience it myself. Like I will feel more. St- inflamed stiff achy and my tummy will get swollen when i realize that i know that i'm i can act all cool on the exterior but i know i'm i'm just trying to stress and lean into every single thing i i just want to uh wrap this up um not only directing people to your book but you know i think someone sees you and you're very dynamic and you know you have this all going for you but you did share that you had and i can i just want to say that when i i my husband came with my oldest daughter. She was a baby and I birthed two more. I have three daughters, two biological. And I had to have two C-sections. One, I was in labor for 18 hours and my daughter, she's very, um, she's a beautiful girl. She has a large head and I would, she would not come out. And so they took her out. And then where I live in Hawaii, they don't do not do v So they were like, you're, we're scheduling you, whatever. So anyway, what I want, if you don't mind quickly to share, um, your story because i i think it's important that people understand that you have ex you sort of had your own journeys with this about medicine or antibiotics and that you you know it's not that it's you know everything and you've just put it on all your patients but that you've had your own sort of path with this
1: a hundred percent i i had to learn the the hard way and it is what you described 17 and a half years ago when i was pregnant super healthy and advanced maternal age, because I was 39, but I'm like, I'm healthier than the 25-year-olds. And long labor, mine, I think I was right at about 18 hours. They end up giving you the labor inducing drugs, which you don't realize are going to increase your risk of a C-section when you get them, and um, ended up with a C-section. And because I had the flu at the time and a fever, they ended up Giving her prophylactic antibiotics just in case, putting her in the NICU. So she got, so she's a C section baby, didn't have the benefit of coming out vaginally where you swallow a mouthful of microbes and get colonized with your mother's microbiome. C section babies are colonized with hospital acquired Staph aureus, which is not what you want to be colonized. That's not what you want as your founding species. And then she got the heavy duty antibiotics at birth. And my breast milk dried up after about six weeks because of all the antibiotics I'd been given. And that set her on a course of literally, my kid was on antibiotics every single month. By the time she was two, she'd been on 22 courses of antibiotics. And the lovely well-meaning pediatrician just wasn't keeping track and didn't, I mean, it wasn't until she came back from the doctor with a nebulizer machine and four prescriptions, like a new diagnosis of, oh, now she has asthma, and here's a steroid, an antihistamine, a bronchodilator, and I forget what, an antibiotic. But I was like, okay, we've got to do this differently. And I'm always quick to say that I'm a physician, and I was able to recognize some things and to veer off path. I don't recommend that people abandon their pediatrician by any stretch of the imagination. But That was really for me when I started to realize that all these frequent antibiotics were making her sicker, were decimating her microbiome and actually increasing her susceptibility and decreasing her resilience. And when I started to ask, I realized that a lot of my patients with autoimmune diseases had that same history in childhood, frequent antibiotics. I saw her dietary cravings change. She went from, you know, was a really good eater, ate everything. She had been hospitalized with rotavirus and classic, classic case rotavirus, a diarrheal illness that kills about half a million children globally every year. But the children who are the sickest are the ones who have been on antibiotics preceding the diagnosis. That was her. She had been wrongly diagnosed with an air infection, put on antibiotics. When she got the rotavirus, she went into kidney failure, liver failure, was in the hospital, and she came. And of course, what do they treat her with? More antibiotics for a viral infection. She came out of that hospitalization like a sugar craving monster, like just almost overnight, really because of the changes in her microbiome. And so that really seeing that and realizing like, there's got to be another way. Like, first of all, they're treating viral infections with antibiotics. that have no efficacy. She's getting sicker, more susceptible. And so we really had to make some changes with diet and, you know, eventually overcame that. And she's, you know, two inches taller than me, healthy. She's a kick-ass rower and super strong and still likes sugar a lot, but, um, you know, eats a lot of other healthy things. So really that experience for me, it was the most significant experience in my life, really seeing, like seeing my child so sick and, realizing that these well-meaning doctors and their care were contributing, right? Because they weren't recognizing the role of the antibiotics in a baby who was a C-section baby, minimally nursed, et cetera. And that really set me on the path. And as much as like literally every day, I'm like, oh, I wish I had a do over for that. I'm also really grateful because it opened my eyes and it allowed me to change my practice. And I think to help, you know, so many patients who are struggling with that same sort of foundation of disease.
0: Dr. Chakhan, I, uh, I, first of all, every parent wants every, all kinds of do-overs. So just know that. And um I, <laughs> and, and also I think it's also that reminder. So if someone's listening and maybe they're having a hard time medically right now, especially in this area, that reminder that there are steps we can take towards that exit sign to heal ourselves. Um yes. I think most times, so I really appreciate the work that you're doing, the courage that you have to say this, because I know it's not probably always the most popular message. <laughs> and, um, and if you could just, as we go, would you just remind all the places people can find you the date and the title that your book is coming out? And um, congratulations, because sure. that's like a textbook that you've written there.
1: Well, thank you so much. And I have to tell you, like, I have admired you for so long. I was chatting with a friend earlier and I was like, gotta go. Gabby Reese podcast. She was like, Gabby Reese. So I have to tell you, you are still very much a superstar. Your athleticism, your approach to life, you've been an inspiration for me and for many other women. So thank you for that. And it's been a real honor to be on with you. The book is called The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out. It's available online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, wherever books are sold. You can find me on my website, Robinchutcan.com, two hard names to spell, R-O-B-Y-N-N-E-C-H-U-T-K-A-N, or gutbliss.com. And we actually have some wonderful pre and post order incentives, even after the book is on sale on November 1st, I put together an amazing antiviral gut masterclass with 10 other brilliant medical faculty. It's a free masterclass. It's going to be available in February and you just need to upload proof of purchase of the book. So we're really thrilled to be able to do that.
0: Yeah. Congratulations on that program, uh, Dr. Chukhan. Thank you for your time.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click gabbyreese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. Stay tuned for a bonus episode coming this Thursday, where I go deeper on one of the topics that really resonated with me. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at Gabby Reese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners.
1: Seeking the truth never gets old.